Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. I'm glad to be um, up here with you guys today. Um, little uh, PSA, Christmas is 17 days away. It's coming. It's coming quick. And there's a verse in uh, John chapter 1, verse 9, and it describes what happened the night that Jesus was born. It says this in John chapter 1, a biography about Jesus' life. It says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is what happened that first Christmas. This is the real reason why we celebrate. And actually, many of our traditions still point to this understanding, this understanding that Jesus is the light of the world. Actually, our Christmas trees, you know, if you have one in your home like this, or the lights that we put on our houses, they point back to this reality. Originally, they were used in Europe, and it was a way that people would kind of celebrate the return of the sun after the darkness and the coldness of winter. And so they would put candles on trees. And Christians saw this practice, and they decided, hey, we, we're celebrating an even more important light. And so let's, let's take that and use it as a way to remind ourselves that the light of the world has come. So Christians started doing it, and this tradition, this way of celebrating began to spread. And so now it's largely, largely understood that the reason Christmas trees with lights and the reason the lights on our houses are so popular is because Christians decided, let's do that to point to the reality that the light of the world has come. So when you drive through your neighborhood this time of year and the lights are on the houses, or if you go to the harbor and they're doing the parade in the harbor, the lights are not the point but they point to the point. And the point is that the light of the world has come. But just like you and I can drive down our streets and miss that and not, not reflect on that reality, we can go through this Christmas season and not reflect on the amazement that God would come in the form of a baby in order to give his life for us. We can go through the season and completely miss the point. So in this series... We're asking an important question, and this is the question. Does the way we spend our time, our money, and energy during Christmas reflect our belief that Jesus is the light of the world? Getting really practical. When you look at, when you look at what's important to us, when you look at where we go, the places we go, and what we celebrate, and, and what we value, does that point to this understanding, not just with our words, but really with our actions? Does that point to that? Or... Do we need to conspire against the way Christmas has been taken over and come up with a new plan? I mean, just think about in your own experience. I mean, how many years have you missed the wonders of God's miraculous birth and it's just kind of been gotten, it's gotten lost in the busyness of the season? Or how many years have you failed to recognize that and you, you walk away from Christmas wanting a different gift than the one that you received? How many years has that happened? That's why we're calling this the Advent Conspiracy. A conspiracy is a counterplan. It's when a group of people get together behind the scenes and talk about what could we do to go against the way things are done. And that's really what we're doing in this series as a church is we're saying, hey, is there a counterplan that we could have towards Christmas? So instead of walking away, you know, broke and worn out and tired and disappointed, so that we could walk away with a renewed sense of wonder and awe and appreciation that God would do what he did for you and me. So that's what we're exploring. In our uh, family, we have a Christmas chain that uh, my wife bought and we set up um, kind of in our dining room. And it, it's got some pictures on it and it kind of helps with a countdown to Christmas. But each morning we'll when we're eating breakfast as a family with the kids, you know, I've got a one-year-old, three-year-old, and then almost a five-year-old. 
we'll pull the pictures down and kind of explain the story. And it's a good way to help the kids kind of learn the Christmas story, but it's also a good way to help the kids wait. Because our kids, I don't know what your kids are like, but our kids are ready for Christmas to be here. I mean, the tree's up, and they're wondering why the presents aren't under it yet. And they know that some shopping's been done because there's been a lot of these brown packages being dropped off at the front door. And they know something's in those packages. So there's, come on, when's it going to happen? So that countdown is just a way to, to, to help them know, hey, the wait is going to come to an end. But right now, we're waiting. We're waiting on Christmas. And if you think about it, that's really what Advent is. Advent is a season of waiting on Christmas to arrive. But waiting is not unique to this time of year. I mean, waiting is just a part of the human experience. It's a reality. We all know we're going to have to wait. If, if you just think about the Christmas story, you know, the prophets, they went to the, the nation of Israel and they said that the Messiah is going to come. And they started telling people that over 700 years before Jesus showed up. The people had to wait over 700 years for the Messiah, Jesus, to arrive. And then when Jesus was here, after he rose from the grave and before he returned to heaven, he told his followers, he said, hey, I'm going to come back. This isn't the end. I'm going to come back and I'm going to wrap up history. Well, that was, that was 2,000 years ago. I mean, we're just, if you think about it, God's people have always been waiting. And often the one we're waiting on is God. And it's the same, not just kind of the big picture, but in our personal lives, it works the same way. I mean, many of us, we're in situations where we're waiting on God to do something. We've been, we've been trying our hardest and putting effort and putting our best thought and to try to get something to change or a new outcome to happen or a new path to open up, and it just won't work. So we've really, we've reached the end of our rope and we've come to the conclusion, if it's going to happen, God's got to do it. I can't make this happen. I've tried and it's just not working out. So many of us are in situations where we're waiting on God. Maybe, maybe you're single and you really want to be married, so you're waiting on God to find a spouse. You know, maybe, maybe it's in your job. Maybe you're waiting on God to kind of give you clarity on a career path or give you a next step in what you're supposed to be working on. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe there's some real some pain and some damage that's been done in the marriage, and you're waiting on God to fix the marriage. You know, maybe, maybe you've got a kid. Maybe you've got a child who's really wandered off, and there's a broken relationship between you and the child. Maybe you're waiting on God to restore that. I mean, we're all waiting for something. So in this season of waiting, Advent, is there something we can remember while we wait for Christmas that'll help us in all these other areas of our lives where we have to wait? Is there some part of this counterplan as we figure out how to celebrate Christmas differently? Is there something we can learn and do as we wait for Christmas, that'll help us in these other areas? Well, I think there is, and I want to answer that this morning. So today's question is, what do you need to remember as you wait? And the first thing we're going to look at is that God has a plan. As you wait, you need to remember that God has a plan. It's interesting to me how many people talk about God's plan. Yesterday, a lot of the college football teams played in their kind of their conference championship games. And it's interesting how many athletes talk about God's plan, whenever they're explaining why something happened. You know, it's even, we, we sing about it in our culture. Artists like Drake have songs called God's Plan. And it's something that comes up again and again, this understanding that God has a plan. And usually how it works is, as long as, as long as God's plan involves us getting what we want when we want it, we love God's plan. I mean, if your plan is, if your life is going up, and you're happy, and you're feeling good, and 
you know, it's, you're like, man, this is a good life. Well, God must be a great planner. But then if life suddenly takes a turn and starts to go in a direction that you don't want it to go, or you're not getting the outcomes that you think you should get, or you have to wait on something, and specifically, if you have to wait longer than you think you should, suddenly it's, does he know what he's doing? Does he even have a plan? Does he care? Does he not see what's going on? And this is usually the way that we think about God's plan. There's actually a clip in one of the recent Star Wars films that I think kind of captures this. One of the, one of the characters, he struggles with the plan of his supervisor. A little background before I show this clip. Um, the Resistance fleet, for all you non-Star Wars people, I don't know how many there would even be, but I'm sure there's some. My wife is one. The Resistance fighters, they're trying to escape the, an attack of the Empire, and there's a fighter pilot named Poe, and he's struggling with the plan of his supervisor. So let's roll this clip and check this out. Let's not have a scene. Now let's. Hold on! Captain, you're not allowed to fly, boy. Cut it, lady. We had a fleet, now we're down to one ship, and you've told us nothing. Tell us that we have a plan, that there's hope. When I served under Leia, she would say, hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you can see it. You'll never make it through the night. Yes. Filling up the transports. You are. All of them? We're abandoning ship. Is that. That's what you got? That's what you brought us to? Howard! Those transport ships are unarmed, unshielded. We abandon this cruiser, we're done. We don't stand a chance. No, you are not just a coward, you are a traitor. Get this man off my bridge. No, no, no. Oh. What is that? The mineral planet Crate. An uncharted hideout from the days of the rebellion. That's a rebel base? Abandoned but heavily armored, with enough power to get a distress signal to our allies scattered in the outer rim. Koldo knew the First Order was tracking our big ship. They're not monitoring for little transports. So we could slip down to the surface unnoticed and hide till the First Order passes. That could work. So what happens? He doesn't have all the information, so what does he do? He jumps to the conclusion that the one who's got the plan is a terrible planner. Actually, I didn't show you the part where he actually rebels and tries to take over the ship. And often, you know, this is what we do. I mean, he, after, you know, after he's got time to look back on it and realize what's going on, he says, wow, that, that's actually a pretty good plan. And you and I can do the same thing with God. I mean, we've got limited information. We don't have all the facts. We don't know everything that's going on. We don't know exactly all the pieces that God's trying to get in place. So sometimes what we can do is with our, with our limited information, when we have to wait, and again, when we have to wait longer than we think we should, we start to say, God must not have a plan. We're tempted to either fight his plan or just, you know, kind of reject his plan and go off on our own. 
And there's something interesting in the story of Christmas and the season of Advent that we're in, the season of waiting. This season, if you let it, this can remind you of how good of a planner God is. This is pretty interesting. A couple verses on this. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. This is talking about kind of the nativity. This is Jesus' his birth. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And when did that happen? What well, says it happened when the fullness of time had come. What does that mean? Well, the Greek, which is the, the language this was written in, the Greek word fullness was a term that was used to describe when a sailor had fully loaded their ship. So whenever a ship had reached its freight capacity, its limit, it was full. They had gotten everything on board that was supposed to be on board. And sometimes what you and I think is we think that, you know, especially when we're waiting and when we're struggling with what, when, when's this going to happen? What's God going to do? We kind of think, well, God, maybe he's just up there in heaven, kind of sitting on heaven's front porch in the rocking chair. He doesn't, you know, he's not concerned with what's going on. He's just kicked back, you know, relaxed. He's, a, he's unaware of what's going on in our life. When the reality is, is what God's doing is like this verse is pointing out, He's using time to enact his plan. He's making sure everybody gets on the ship. Everything that needs to happen, happens. Getting all the details in place. And if you think about the complexity of his plan and what it involves, I mean, his plan involves your and my free will. And, you know, I mean, we as individuals, we think that we're pretty predictable, but we know other people are pretty unpredictable. And they're hard to control. Somehow God's plan involves everybody's choices and he's bringing them together in this, this really amazing, complex way that we can't fully understand. But just like this verse points out, it says, when the fullness of time had come, his plan comes together at just the right time. Another verse on this. I mean, it's not just Jesus' birth. Another verse, Romans 5, 6, it says, you see, at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, Jesus' birth, that, that's just kind of the first, the first part of his plan in coming to earth was him being born. You know, I know we, we celebrate Christmas, but the big point is not the baby born in the nativity. It's who the baby born in the nativity, he would grow up in the type of live, life that he would live in order to give his life for us. The, the kind of the, the big picture of the plan was our salvation. So not only was he born at the perfect time, but when, he get, when did he give his life? It says at just the right time. He gave his life for us at the exact moment that it needed to be done. I mean, God's planning, it's amazing how much detail goes into it and how much thought goes into it to where it, it happens at just the right time. He has perfect timing with his plan. But it's not just, you know, not just reflecting on the story of, of Christmas and kind of who Jesus, what Jesus would end up doing with his life and giving his life for us. God actually has a really detailed plan for you and me. This is what it says in Romans chapter 8. It says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, I, I struggled with this verse for a while because it says God works all things for the good. And I struggled with this because there's things in my life that I can point to, and they're not good. I mean, there's things that there's, there's stuff I've gone through that's really caused pain and brought tears into my life. There's dreams that I have that were shattered and didn't get to be fulfilled. There's stuff that I've lost along the way. And so I look at some of those things, and I'm like, that, there's no, that's not good. Like, how in the world could this verse be true? And somebody explained it to me, and it really helped me understand the way that God works. They, they explained to me that 
God's plan and him working all things for good is kind of like how you would assemble and then bake a cake. I mean, if you think about the different ingredients of a cake, you've got, you know, flour and eggs and sugar and salt and, you know, baking powder in there, all, all these different things. And on their own, none of those are that great. I mean, I'm sure some of the youth in here today would eat a cup of raw sugar. I would not. I'm going to pass. I mean, a lot of those things, you know, even the one with the most flavor, on its own, it's not that great. But then if you take those ingredients, you mix them together, put them in a pan, put them in the oven, what do you have to do when it's in the oven? You have to wait on it. Take it out of the oven, you can't just eat it right away, what do you have to do again? You got to wait, you got to wait for it to cool. Well, what happens? Suddenly you have something that's, it's really good. That's a really good piece of cake. You know what, I'll, I'll have seconds of that. Something that on its own wasn't that amazing, but God takes it and puts it together, and over time, we look back and we say, man, he is a really good planner. That's something that as we're waiting for Christmas, and we reflect on the story and the way that God works, it can remind us of just how good of a planner he is. When you're in the middle of the waiting, it's really hard to say, ah, God's got a great plan. But if you, if you trust his plan, if you don't just kind of go off on your own and try to take matters into your own hand, if you trust his plan and continue to move forward towards him, you'll come to a point where you'll say, man, he is a great planner. In the moment, it didn't make sense to me. In the moment, I didn't want it. That was the hardest, most painful thing I ever went through. But now I realize God can take even the unwanted, painful things and bring them together for good. Advent, this season, is an opportunity for you and me to remember that. Another thing that we can remember is that God is what we need. This is another important thing of Advent that we can remember. God is what we need. We all have needs, and our needs are, it's a, a helpful way to think of our needs is kind of break them into two categories, to look at them as tangible needs and also intangible needs. Tangible means discernible or capable of being touched. Food is a tangible need. Shelter is a tangible need. Money is a tangible need. We need those things. We go to work so that we can get money, so that we can provide food and shelter for our families. But then we also have intangible needs. Intangible needs are not discernible or capable of being touched. Needs like purpose, love, joy, peace, belonging, things that you can't, you can't physically touch them, but when you have them, they bring a, a deep sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, things on the inside. What about, what about eternal life? I mean, that's a need. You're not going to be able to touch that here. God, God's the one who gives these. He's the one who meets these intangible needs. But something that you and I will do is because we have the ability to meet our tangible physical needs, we'll start to live like that's all we need. And we'll start to live like we don't really need God because we're doing pretty good. We've got plenty of money. We've got the toys that we want. You know, we've got shelter. We're, we're meeting our tangible needs. So you know what? We're pretty good. We don't really need God. And whenever we start to live, live that way, an emptiness and a hunger starts to grow on the inside. And we respond to that emptiness and hunger on the inside whenever we experience emptiness or hunger on the outside. We, we get busier. We put in more work. We, we consume more. We look for new products and new experiences to meet those needs on the inside that we have. But it's important to understand that looking for something tangible to meet an intangible need will never work. There's nothing on the outside to solve what's going on on the inside. Only God can do that. And he taught that 
to the nation of Israel in a pretty shocking way, and he, he shares the story with us, so hopefully we don't have to learn it the hard way, but we can learn from their example. And in Israel's history, there's a period where they've come out of Egypt, they're headed for the promised lands, referred to kind of as the Exodus, and they're, they're marching across the desert. And while they're, they're going through the desert, headed for the promised land, they run out of food. So the people start to lose hope, they start to complain, why did God ever bring us out here? So what God decides to do is he, send, he, he says, okay, I'm going to meet your daily needs. So he sends a dew that covered the ground in the morning, and in the dew was a little seed, and the people would go out every day, and they would gather this seed, and they would grind it up, and they would make breads, and they would have enough food to feed themselves for the day. It was referred to as manna. It literally translates into, what is it? I mean, they just walked out, got it, ground it up, and suddenly they had what they needed for the day. Now, one of the conditions on this that God put is, if they tried to gather more than they needed for that one day, if they tried to gather enough and store it for the next day, it would go bad. So they would wake up the next morning and it was, had worms, it was rotten, and it smelled. So every day they had to wake up asking the question, is God going to meet our needs today? And this is crazy. 40 years. This is how he fed over 2 million people in the desert. I mean, 40 years. I haven't even been along that live, alive that long. <laughs> Why did God do this? What was the point? Well, Moses explained it. He says this in Deuteronomy 8. He says, To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I I appreciate the fact that it points out we need bread. It says you don't live on bread alone. We have real, tangible needs like food. But even more important, we need God. And the manna was used with the nation of Israel as an object lesson to teach them that their biggest need every day was God acting on their behalf. And he taught them this so that when they, after the 40 years, when they got settled and, you know, and they started working their crops and they started raising livestock and kind of going about the work of meeting their daily tangible needs, this would be seared in their memory. I mean, over 14,000 days of waking up and asking the question, I wonder if God met our needs today. And then they walked outside and this reality hit them. God met our needs. He did that so that it would be seared into their memory that their biggest need is God, him working on their behalf. And it's the same for you and me. We're not an exception. Our biggest need is God. And as we reflect on Christmas and the origin story of this baby in the manger who would grow up to give his life so that we could be forgiven for our sins, as you reflect on that story, it's a reminder that, you know what you and I need? We need God. But often in this time of year, we go through it, and instead of reflecting on that, we get, we get really busy, and we consume way more than we need. And if you think about those two, you know, filling our schedules to the point of exhaustion and kind of hyper-consumption, consuming more than we need, often, not always, but often those are indicators that we're living like we don't need God. You know, often whenever we're looking, when we're taking in more from the outside than we need, and our schedules are so busy that we don't have any time and we're just left, oh man, I just, there's not enough time in the day. Usually those two point to the fact that we're looking at something tangible, something physical, to meet the needs that we have on the inside. So a lot of times, just the way we approach Christmas and the energy we go into it, we're, we're just, we're looking for something out there to meet the need that only God can meet. So just like the nation of Israel needed this experience to remind them that God was the one who met their needs. Advent, as we go through this, this is an opportunity for you and me to remember, oh yeah, God is my biggest need. So as part of the counter plan, I actually have a recommendation, getting real practical. 
What could you do this Christmas, this Advent season, to remember that God is your biggest need? Well, my recommendation is that you choose a discipline of abstaining. Now, let me explain what I mean, because the word abstain has become somewhat of a cuss word in our culture, and you probably first heard it in junior high and high school, and it wasn't a very popular idea. And often what's presented to us is that abstaining is unhealthy. It's bad. It's wrong. It's not good. You shouldn't do it. Don't abstain from anything. I mean, if, if, if it's a craving or a desire or a pleasure, go for it. You need to act on those things. You know, every feeling you have, what's often told to us is every feeling you have, you need to respond to that. I mean, that's, that's real. That's, that's your truth. You've got to move in that direction, whatever that is. That's often what's presented to us. And it's important for us as we think through that line of thinking, it's important for us to kind of understand, well, where does this idea that abstaining is bad, where does that come from? And it comes out of a kind of a train of thought that a belief that all that exists is here and now. This idea that the only thing that exists is the tangible, the physical reality around us. There's no afterlife. There's no heaven, there's no hell, those are not real places, they're just made up, those don't exist. God might exist, he might not exist, if he does exist, he doesn't care about us, he doesn't have any standard for us to live by, he hasn't given us any instruction or guidance, he's just, he's off on his own, he's aloof, but there's a big chance that he doesn't exist. So there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no standard for us to live by, there's no God who created us. So because of those things, the line of thinking then goes, the point of this life is to feel good, have fun. And the term we often use is be happy. I mean, that's often what we talk about is, well, did it make you happy? Well, you know, if you didn't make happy, I, I just need to find something new because I'm really not happy. I mean, it's just, it's used again and again as that's the main motivation for a lot of the stuff that people do is, well, did it make you happy? No, it didn't make me happy. Well, you got to find something new to do. You have to find something that makes you happy because here and now, I mean, really, if you think about it, if here and now is all there is, if, if heaven and hell are not real destinations and what we do in this life doesn't affect where we're going to spend the next life, if God doesn't care and he didn't give a standard for us to live up to, then by all means, I mean, this is your one shot. You know, why make it hard on yourself? Be happy. If it's going to make you feel good, you got to do it. I mean, you have to do it you know, abstaining, you, you should never abstain from anything. That's where this idea really comes out of it. And I, I want to point out that happiness is not bad. I want to be happy. I mean, I don't want a really hard, painful life. I want my kids to be happy. But I also understand that there's more than here and now. So that means that happiness is not the priority. The afterlife is real. What we do will determine the destinations we end up at. God is real. He has spoken He's given instructions for how to live. So what, my happiness, while it's not a bad thing, it's just not the main thing. It's not the priority. The priority of this life is for us to reconcile our relationships with God, figure out who he is and how do I, how do I get a relationship with this God. And then after we do that, the, the priority is, okay, so how do I follow him? How does he want me to live? Because there's more going on than just here and now. So that means that happiness, while it's not bad, there's more than just being happy. And that's where these disciplines of abstaining come in. The, the word abstain means to refrain from something voluntarily. It's not a bad thing. That can be really good. 
There are even some good things in our lives that we should refrain from voluntarily. So whenever a person chooses a discipline of abstaining, really what they're saying is, they're saying, my, my heart is prone to look for something tangible to meet all my needs, even my intangible ones. I'm prone to live as though all that exists is here and now. So I'm, I'm choosing to refrain from something physical, something tangible, to remind myself that God is my biggest need. That's what these disciplines are doing. And this could look a lot of different ways in your life. I mean, you know, I'll just give you a list of different ones that you could try. Maybe, maybe you abstain from food. This would be a traditional fast. Maybe you say, okay, this one meal this week, I'm going to skip this meal. Or maybe, maybe you do a longer one. Maybe you say, okay, I'm going to go from dinner on Monday night, and I'm not going to eat until dinner on Tuesday night. A, a specific period of time. And there's a lot of people out there who will say, oh, all these health benefits from it and all these. The real reason you're doing it is to remind yourself that God is your biggest need. You're refraining from something like food that's good to remind your heart that, well, what I need more than food is God. Because what will happen if you do this is your stomach will start to growl. And if you have a high metabolism, you might get a little low blood sugar and you might get a little shaky. And your body will be saying, your biggest need right now is to eat. But you use that as a way to say, okay, God, right now my body's telling me that my biggest need is food. Would you remind me that bigger than that, I need you? I need the help that only you can give. I need you working behind the scenes on my behalf. So God, would you remind me of that and not look for something around me, physical, to meet my needs? Maybe, maybe it's a fast. Maybe, maybe you take a break from technology. You know these phones we have in our pockets? These are amazing. One of the things they're really amazing at is escaping reality. I mean, we use these as a distraction. I mean, you can be in a room full of people, but you don't have to interact with them because you're looking down at your phone. So maybe, maybe you just turn it off. I mean, maybe it's like, you know, maybe it's in the evening. Maybe, maybe one day a week. There's a lot of different ways this could work. You know, don't freak out. Some of you are like, turn the phone off. No, I mean, it's just, you choose. It's voluntary. <laughs> maybe from like 6 to 10, you take the phone, the iPad, the TV, you turn it all off. And you just relate to and engage the people that are around you. Maybe you spend some time reflecting on something going on in your life. Maybe you ask God to speak in an area that you need help with. Something, something voluntary, you're abstaining from it, to remind yourself that your biggest need is not to escape, not to veg out, but your biggest need is God. Maybe another idea, maybe you abstain from purchasing anything for yourself this Christmas. I said it. I got it out there. We spend so much money on ourselves, and a lot of it, it's not needed. I mean, some of it's good and needed, but a lot of it's not essential stuff. Because let's be, let's be honest, when we really need something, we just go buy it. I mean, a lot of the spending is like we're trying to, we're trying to meet some needs. Maybe you just, maybe just take a break. You know, next, this is what we're going to dive into next week. Next week is part of this plan. We're going to talk about spending less. We're going to get in this more. Maybe, maybe you just take a break from buying anything for yourself. Maybe solitude. This is one of my favorites. Just go on a long walk. Get alone. Go to the wetlands. Go to Crystal Cove. Go to Central Park. Just go on a long walk by yourself. Use the time without, don't listen to anything. It's just you. Use the time Maybe to pray, maybe reflect on some verses, maybe some verses out of this message that we've talked about. Maybe this is maybe that time that you're spending, hey God, would you would you use this time to really remind me of how good your plan is? Would you re- use this time to remind me that I need you? Maybe silence. Maybe that's what you do. Maybe you just abstain from sound. So, so many people, it's so common in our culture that without sound we get really uncomfortable. I'm just gonna wait for like five minutes. <laughs> 
maybe you need to hear from God. The Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. Maybe you need to hear from God, but there's so much noise that you just can't hear him. So maybe you do just need some silence, just you, God, and your thoughts. Again, it's not one size fits all. This is just an idea. It's voluntary. Nobody's going to check in on you, but it's you engaging in the counter plan so that you can remind your heart, hey, my biggest need is not something on the outside. My, need is, my biggest need is God. He's the only one that can meet my needs. A couple tips if you're going to do this. Come straight from Jesus. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. This is in the message. He says, when you practice some appetite-denying discipline to better concentrate on God, that's what you're doing. You're using it to concentrate on God. Don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. If you go into training inwardly, act normal outwardly. Shampoo and comb your hair, brush your teeth, wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. He won't overlook what you're doing. He'll reward you well. What's Jesus' point? His point is, don't make a big deal about it. I mean, if you're at work and you decide, you know, I'm going to skip lunch today, and instead I'm going to focus on, you know, you know, prayer and asking God to really help me in some areas, well, don't go into the meeting after lunch and walk in and be like, oh, guys, I'm so hungry because I'm being spiritual, you know, and don't do that. Like, if you, if you do, if, you know, if you decide, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to buy anything for myself. Yeah, I'm still going to get stuff for the kids, but I'm not, I'm not going to buy anything for myself. If you decide to do that, you know, don't be the person that's just like, this is the hardest Christmas I've ever had because Home Depot has this sale, and you would not believe how good this sale, and don't talk about it. Seriously, don't talk about it. Just, like it says, don't make a big deal. I love the fact that it says, act normal. Just act normal. I mean, it, I would say the only people to tell are people that would encourage you and maybe give you some accountability to stay on track with it. But if they can't give that, then don't tell anybody. Because it's not between you and some other person. It's not to brag and be like, oh, you know, I'm engaging in this process to remind myself that God is my biggest need. This is between you and God. This is about your heart remembering that God is your biggest need. If somebody else wants to go and spend a ton of money on themselves for Christmas, there is nothing wrong with that. That's fine. That's fine. Don't make a big deal. Don't, don't be like, hey, I'm doing this, so it's got to project on everybody else. Keep this between you and God. And also, another important thing, sometimes we, we treat these disciplines of abstaining like we treat going to the gym and our diet. You know, it's kind of like, I went to the gym so I can have two bowls of ice cream tonight. <laughs> you don't abstain so that you can overindulge. That's not the point. The point of abstaining is to remind your heart that God is your biggest need. We're all waiting. We're all waiting for something. And as we're in this set period of waiting for Christmas, because we're all waiting for Christmas in 17 days, we're closer now than when we started 30 minutes ago. But as we're in this season of waiting, strategically use this season to remember, God has a plan. And I, I can't fully see it, and I don't even fully understand it, and I might not even like exactly what's happening, but I can trust that he's going to work all things for good. He's got a plan. He's a great planner. And use this season to remind your heart that God is my biggest need. Every day, instead of chasing, just like it says, man does not live on bread alone. Instead of chasing all these other things to meet my needs, my biggest need today is God acting on my behalf. That's what you and I can learn as we go through Advent. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that it was in your plan to meet the biggest need that we could ever have, which is the problem of sin. 
and to send Jesus. And it wasn't, he didn't just meet it in the minimum way, but he met it by bringing us into your family and giving us a future that we could never deserve or never imagine. And so I thank you for the fact that that was part of your plan. God, I pray that as we go through this season that we wouldn't miss how amazing what you've done is, but we would go through this season and we would be able to recapture that, that awe and that wonder and that gratitude of our God is good. He has a plan. He has what we need, and we'll trust him. I pray that that's what happens. In Jesus' name, amen.